0: Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard.
1: Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, No Bullshit Radio Show. Last week, I broadcast the show from Sydney, beautiful Sydney Harbour in Australia, and this week we're in the magnificent city of Hong Kong. Now, one of the benefits of having clients all around the world is that I get to travel a lot. You know, I see a lot of different cultures and different ways of doing business. Hong Kong is an extraordinary place. It's so vibrant and positive. Despite being in China, you can feel capitalism energy all around you. I'm sitting here looking out the window at the Hyatt Looking across Victoria Harbour to Kowloon, there is development everywhere. Huge skyscrapers with Merry Christmas and Seasons Greetings lights all over the buildings. I reckon some of these um, signs, these illuminated signs, must be 20 stories tall. And then looking back at the summit, that's really quite a sight. I'm here in Hong Kong with a client who is a diamond merchant globally. And he supplies to companies like Van Cleef, Cartier and Tiffany's. In fact, I think he's got most of Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills sewn up. Mark specialises in rare coloured diamonds like reds, pinks, blues, greens and yellows. Now, one of Mark's claims to fame is that he predicted the GFC and the recessions of the 70s, 80s and 90s. Mark has observed that about 12 months before each major economic downturn, Coloured diamonds get very scarce and prices escalate. Now this is happening right now. The demand is very, very strong. Mark had a pink diamond which 12 months ago was 28 million, just sold for 42 million. That's a 50% increase in 12 months. So based on Mark's history, he's predicting a devastating global financial collapse late in 2012. 2012. So, however, I'm a great optimist. I hope he's wrong, but I have no confidence in the White House or Congress, no matter who's in charge, getting us back into prosperity. I also have absolutely no confidence in the huge corporations or the European banks who in this new technology age are mostly dinosaurs. But I do have confidence in you, the entrepreneur who has a great idea. Doesn't matter whether you've got one employee or 200. It's you that can turn this economy around. Entrepreneurs, like the people that listen to this show, are the lifeblood of every nation. You create the wealth, you create the jobs, you make business interesting, and you provide the vibrancy. Now, the sole purpose of this show is to help you run a successful business. I want to give you tips to ensure that you're successful. You know, we can't all be great at everything. So I want to help you fill in any gaps that you have in your expertise. I want you to write to me, email me, tweet me, become my contact on LinkedIn, go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and subscribe to my newsletter. Tell me what you think. Share your ideas, you can criticize me if you like, you can praise me if you like, and let me know what you'd like me to talk about on air. Now, as I've said repeatedly, new media, phone, email, Twitter, Facebook, and the internet are fantastic business tools. Advertising channels such as TV, radio, print, outdoor, they're all inefficient and ineffective. They're monologue. One advertiser trying to yell at consumers louder than the next one. Traditional market research is really slow. In fact, every aspect of traditional business is slow. It's almost impossible to be successful or efficient using traditional methods. On the other hand, New media is all about reaching customers and potential customers one-on-one and having dialogue with them, all in real time. You know, many businesses still think of Twitter, Facebook, and other so-called new media channels, and even email and mobile, for that matter, as being mainly for gossip. But in reality, they are extremely versatile tools and can be used for public relations, customer support, Market research, brand marketing, fantastic for promotions, consumer education and your dialogue, they're good for sales, product development, and customer relationship management is ideally suited for new media. Now, in all of these areas of business, new media is instant. It's inexpensive and totally measurable. And you reach a potential client at the time of their choosing, so it's comfortable for them. Yet, I've read that less than 4% of companies use new media for more than two of the nine applications that I just mentioned. Now, to be successful, businesses must be highly efficient, whether it be in administration or sales or marketing or advertising, PR, manufacturing, distribution, whatever it is. With the technology available today, we must measure every aspect of our business. It's the only way we can improve. Unfortunately, very few small businesses, under 200 employees, measure any aspect of their operation. So if you want to know more about how to use new media, There's extensive information in my new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets. It's in the Internet, Commerce and Social Media chapter. You can get it at your local bookstore or at Amazon. My first guest after the break is a Silicon Valley expert in analytics, which is the science of measuring the results of all forms of new media. Now, he was introduced to me by a listener to the program. And I want to thank Emily Sidley, of Three Girls Media in California for your email and for your initiative. Now, before I chat to Ferris, I wanted to talk to you about one of the most important tools in your marketing armory that I mentioned last week. Your consumer purchasing benefit or your customer purchasing benefit, a tool that can increase your sales exponentially. Now, the major cause of corporate and product failure is the inability to effectively differentiate from customers, from competitors. How many of you have competitors that have basically the same product that you do? How do you differentiate yourself in the customer's mind? Now, without establishing that differentiation, there's no equity in your brand, and a poor performance is almost guaranteed. Now customers see the overwhelming majority of brands in any category as being me too. Same as the next. Brand loyalty is broken down to the point where today up to 94% of decisions are made at point of purchase. Most consumers are happy to buy any one of three or four brands in any category. It doesn't make much difference. Now, differentiating your product from your competition is the only way to develop heart share, build first recall brand awareness, and secure a purchase decision in the customer's subconscious mind. If the customer thinks of you first, they'll buy your product. I want you to remember that 75% of people try new products because of word of mouth, only 25% try new products because of advertising. And the most effective way to communicate your point of difference is through your customer purchasing benefit. Now your CPT is the single word or phrase that differentiates your product from your competitors. Now most marketers are familiar with unique selling proposition, the USP. It's a decades-old line that was in the, used very successfully in the supply and demand economy. But we've moved on. We're now in a demand and supply economy. The customer demands it and the businesses supply it. So the customer purchasing benefit is much more effective as it recognises that the buyer is the only person that counts in a transaction. Now, can you convey your company's advantage over your competition in just five or six words? If you can't, how are you going to sell your product or service to time-poor prospective clients en masse? The reality is you can't. Now, your CPB needs to achieve one or both of two objectives. Firstly, it's got to highlight your primary emotional competitive advantage. I think I mentioned last week, Blue Omo, laundry detergent, swept the world with the CPB, washes whiter than white. It says it all. You want your clothes to be white. So that's a really hard one. top differentiated Blue Omo and they ran away with the market. The second thing that your um, CPB needs to do, it can highlight your competitor's weakness. For example, Visa users everywhere you want to be, because it highlights that far fewer establishments take American Express. So it just reminds you that you can get much more use out of your Visa card than you can out of your American Express card. Now, the majority of well-known brands have a CPB. Yet, astoundingly. About 90% of all SMEs do not utilise this powerful marketing tool. There are many examples of great CPBs. However, I still think that Domino's did it particularly well. Domino's Pizza is competing with millions of other pizza stores. And food is an extraordinarily competitive business that relies almost entirely on price. Domino's realised that most pe- people who ordered home delivery wanted it fast. So their promise of delivery in 30 minutes or it's free connected directly with the public's hot button. This was their CPB. It differentiated Domino's from all other companies who were promoting food based on taste, serving size or price. Business for Domino's boomed and the opposition was blitzed. Dominoes no longer had to compete solely on price. They achieved their result by not offering a good pizza, a cheap pizza, or even a hot pizza. They did it by impacting people's primary motivation, the time element. More importantly, a great CPB works for any category of business. There was a house in Zuma Beach in Malibu, which despite heavy advertising, open houses, and a procession of agents remained unsold for years. Coldwell Banker agent, Carol Bird, noticed that there were thousands of butterflies on the property. So she christened the house Butterfly Haven, put a brass nameplate on the gates and advertised it as Malibu's Butterfly Haven. It sold almost immediately for well above the listed price. Now this is an excellent example of CPB. The butterflies differentiated the property from all other listings. We found that CPBs didn't work in sport. Teams whose CPBs relate to winning, such as a winning season, actually had smaller tendencies than those who emphasised what spectators really want, which is fun and entertainment. CPBs like a great night out, were much more effective. Now, consumer purchasing benefit can be both persuasive and pervasive. Disneyland is the happiest place on earth. When you ask somebody what they thought of Disneyland, what do they say? I loved it. Everybody was so friendly. It's so clean. It's great. Did they tell you about the hour they had to wait to go on a ride? No. Do they complain about the 69 Bucket Mission? No. Disneyland has an emotional, motivating CPB conveyed in every conceivable application, and they do everything they can to live up to it. If you want to know more about material from any of my shows, or more about CPB, go to Voice America Business, Bob Pritchard Archives. After the break, I'll be back with Ferris AlHalu, who is the sing- start again, who is the Silicon Valley-based CEO of Enor, one of America's leaders in analytics. This is an interview not to miss. So don't forget to let me know what you would like me to discuss on the program. Go to bobpritchard.com, tweet me, email me, contact me on LinkedIn, send a bloody carrier pigeon. I don't care. Just get in touch with me and let's get this planet moving again. I'll be back in a couple of minutes.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to
1: our first interview segment today. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke of the ability of today's technology to measure the performance of every single aspect of our business. Unfortunately, many businesses are either too lazy or have too little knowledge to be able to do this. And remember, what you can't measure, you can't control. And today's success is all about running a tight ship. My guest today is Ferris Alhalu, President of eNOR, a digital marketing evangelist with a host of Fortune 500 companies as clients. Ferris is a specialist at measuring web performance, social media and mobile, and I know that concerns a lot of people today, helping clients understand the digital ecosystem, creating strategies and implementation. And then making sense of it all. What does all this stuff mean? Ferris, welcome to the program. Well, my pleasure, Bob. Thank you for having me in the show. Many of our listeners possibly don't have a clue what we're talking about. Can you just give me a short, simple overview of what analytics is? Absolutely.
2: You know, Bob, in, in your introduction, you, know, you hit on a very important aspect of running a successful business. And that is, if I may a phrase, you phrase know, you cannot improve what you don't measure. It's just, just how it is. So, analytics is all about measuring what's important to the business. So, for example, if you have a website, if you're a business owner, you're a marketing manager, you have a website, you wanna know if you are driving traffic to this website. You want to know if people are coming to your site and sticking around and buying or they're leaving right away. So analytics, it's not all technical. You don't need to be a statistician to really get it. It's about answering marketing and business questions to help us improve and you know improve our business and improve
1: the return on investment for our campaigns. Right, I know a lot of people who um, who say to me, we can't, we, we just don't know what sort of results we're getting. So if a client's spending a lot of money and effort on their emails, their search. Banners, radio, marketing campaigns, whatever venue they may be taking, how do they get an idea if it's working or not? What do they need to do? Sure. So analytics helps answer
2: it helps answer these questions. So, for example, if I'm running an email campaign, right, almost every other business today, they do some sort of email campaigns, right. Yes. I would love to know if if I have a thousand people on my email list, I send them the email out. Are people opening these emails? Are they clicking on my offer and coming to my website? And when they come to the website, are they downloading my white paper? Are they requesting a quote? Are they buying? If I sell products online. That those are sort of metrics you will look for based on that channel. If it's an email, I mentioned a few ways to measure it. If it's search, I want to know what keywords people are typing, what keywords are working for me, what keywords are bringing sales. All of that is very, very measurable. You just have to have a have that mindset as a business owner, as a marketing manager, to be able to act on this data that's available to us today through Google Analytics or other other analytics products.
1: So you can you can detect what the um, uh, respondent is doing at every step along the way. Oh,
2: absolutely, yes. Okay, you know, if we, we all go on Google and we search for cars, we look search for gifts, we holidays around the corner here in the US, so, so basically I should be able as, as a marketing manager, I should be able to know where my money is spent, where which ads are working, which landing pages are working, which, what's not working so I can act on it, I can improve it and I can improve my, my
1: bottom line. Okay, fantastic. So if I sell products online and I use, say, Google AdWords, for example, to promote my business, what tips do you have on how I can improve my return on investment from my AdWords campaign?
2: You know, the one tip that comes to mind is you don't want to have your account, your AdWords campaigns on an autopilot program. You know, we see this quite often, especially with small mid-sized businesses, they set up an account, they select two keywords, they put some ad copy out there, and they send traffic to their home page and, and they think they're done. You know, the, the days of you build it and they come are long gone. You really have to pay attention to what your this is your money, this is your investment, your effort, right? Yeah. So having this set and forget type uh, program type campaign will not work for, for for businesses anymore. So you can track, as I said earlier, I want to know, from the Google address, I want to know what campaigns are bringing me sales, are bringing me qualified leads. Right. Am I targeting the right geography, right? So some of the tips, as I said, is to, you know, don't set your campaigns on, on autopilot. Look at your campaigns once a week, once a month, you know, once a day, depending on, on the size of, of, of your campaign. Sure. And then tra- track action, track what you want your users to do. Namely, leads, sales, if it's a content website, People downloading podcasts, people watching videos, track what's important to you, and tie it back
1: to your AdWords campaigns and keywords. Yeah, it's interesting because I was speaking to a, um, a client the other day that's uh, in London, and um, they have, I'm just trying to think of the numbers, but like 60% of people that land on their landing page, that go to the landing page, click through to the shopping cart. But once they get to the shopping cart, they lose ninety percent of those. For some reason, everybody drops off at the at the shopping cart. And uh, their question to me was, um, you know, why would that happen? What what sort of a a a reason would you give for um, people dropping off once they get to the shopping cart?
2: You know, that that's very good. The fact that you have those numbers, Bob, and that somebody's paying close attention to where people are coming from and if they're sticking or they're bouncing. You have, I mean, that level of detail, that's indicative of somebody who's really tracking their business properly. And the next step is, as you said, what do I do about it, right? So analytics not just about a bunch of data, but to look, to take actions based on what we find. So it could be, you know, you start to analyze the shopping cart. Maybe, maybe you're forcing everybody to become a member. I've seen this. I, I go on a site to buy a gift from my wife. I don't want to be a member. I just want to buy a gift and, and move on. Yeah. So you, you, there's some best practices on how to in, improve stickiness and how to help people convert through this shopping cart process. And basically, you evaluate and then you can test. You can try a different, maybe landing page, different shopping funnel experience and then see an improvement and build on that. But, but you're right on in terms of measuring these key elements of an e-commerce website and then finding those bottlenecks and improving them based on, you know, some, some common and some best practices about about conversion and then testing to
1: make sure it's working for you. Okay, great. Thanks. I appreciate that. So if I was in charge of online marketing for a B2B um, and my job is to drive leads to the business, can I still leverage analytics to, to optimize my campaigns and drive more leads even if we don't sell products online? Uh, definitely. People... You you don't have to be an e-commerce
2: retailer, an e-commerce type website to be successful online. Uh, We we work with a lot of B2B businesses. Uh, You can be also a media website, but if you're in charge of bringing leads to your business in a a B2B environment, you should be able to measure, again, where people are coming to so which sources, right? Do I have a partner who sends traffic to my website and the, this traffic is consistent, is increasing, is trending up, then that's a partner that I want to take care of and maybe promote further. And then once traffic from that partner comes to the website, I, I know that people are requesting for quote, uh, requesting quotes, they are downloading my white papers, they're watching my, my demos, they're trying, they're trying our free trials. So I can measure the actions on the website in a business-to-business, even though I'm not selling, but they're they're definitely, there are what we call micro-conversion, conversions. is, I have actions that indicate that the users are engaged, that they like what I have. Then maybe they're not ready to buy from me, but they're ready to give me, maybe subscribe to my email newsletter, they're ready to subscribe to, um, maybe have a free trial, as I said, or download a PDF, or watch a video. All that should be measurable, and then all all of that
1: sense for, for a B2B environment. Okay, fantastic. Um, let's say I've added the Google Analytics code to my site. Now what do I do? How do? Where do I go now?
2: Sure, the good thing about Google Analytics is that it works for small businesses, it works for Fortune 25. You know, it depends on, on, on what you have, but you can get it to work for you. And one of the easiest things I would say in terms of Google Analytics that, that will give you a lot of insight look at your traffic sources, look at where, who's bringing traffic to your website. Is it, again, maybe your paid search campaign, maybe your organic search campaign, maybe it's an email campaign, maybe it's, I was on a radio show and then people heard it and they came back to my website from, you know, whatever the case might be, you can so easily find the traffic sources that are hitting your site within Google Analytics, just go to Your traffic report and see the sites and the channels that bring you know bring uh, bring traffic to your site, and from that point on, you can set up. You can easily set up goals or actions or or sales or downloads, whatever is important to your business on your website. You can set those up as goals, and you can see which traffic source is bringing you more actions, more goals, more sales, more leads. So those are some of the. So, but the long-hanging fruit that, that we all can easily achieve with Google Analytics and it will help you definitely will greatly help you
1: impact the business. Ferris mobile's everywhere and, and you know I, I believe that the future is going to be on mobile devices um, should business owners and, and marketing managers be planning mobile sites mobile campaigns and mobile apps now? Uh, you know <laughs> absolutely and, and if you I was
2: at a we were at a Google conference, and, and the head of the mobile department said there, there are, I think, 4. some billion mobile de- devices? Yes. Yeah. 1.4 watches, wristwatches, right? Right. So, so there, there are everybody and everyone has a mobile device. You know, it's not just a phone anymore, it's a tablet, it's an you know, iPad, what have you. So, yes, mobile is everywhere. And as business owners and marketing managers, we need to keep a close eye on what's trending in terms of mobile. So if I'm seeing a, 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 tra- a positive trend in, in my traffic, uh, in, in traffic from from mobile devices, I, I should be um, happily alarmed in a way because now I know where my users are coming from. Sure. So if, I have, if I have a very busy website and it doesn't load um, nicely on, on a mobile device, I have, I have, I'm already, I'm already Uh, aware of the need here. My customers are coming to me from from the mobile devices and they cannot contact me, they cannot buy, they cannot navigate through my website because the site is not very mobile friendly. So if I see it turned up in mobile traffic to my business I should create a mobile friendly experience, maybe a mobile website or maybe a mobile app. And as I said, with everything else we should be tracking that. You can track your mobile website, you can track the actions on You know, on maybe your your mobile apps, but but I would say for small businesses and and starting or businesses who are just starting into their mobile um, efforts, just look at your analytics today, look at new analytics, look at the trends in terms of mobile traffic. And if you see that trending up, it's time to dedicate some uh, some effort to to a mobile maybe app or a mobile site, and make
1: sure that that mobile experience is
2: very friendly for your users.
1: Okay. First, we're we're way over time, but this is such an important interview, um, important information for people that um, are listening to me. I'm going to extend it just a little bit. Um, So, does it make sense for me to use Facebook and Twitter and blogs and video, etc., for my company? And how do I know if it's really working for my business? How do I? It's a. You
2: know, I I I said mobile is everywhere. Well, social is everywhere too.
0: Yes. And it used to
2: be some of us my thing you know just maybe my teenage daughter's is is on Facebook but that's not the case anymore it hasn't been the case actually for for a couple years so Facebook is where the conversation in Twitter Facebook maybe your blog you know YouTube this is where the conversation is this is where your clients or your prospects are talking about you uh, positively or otherwise Right. right so being there Participating in that conversation, influencing that conversation is really key. And when I say social and I say Facebook and Twitter and a blog, it doesn't mean that we just have a nice, nicely designed page for Facebook or for Twitter. It's actually putting some resources, some effort, right? And you can't just outsource this, but you should, you know, want, build content, create content that will engage your users in Facebook and on Twitter, on your blog, and be there to watch, to react, to respond, to get their feedback and that's just an amazing way for us to be in touch, you know, in close uh, relationship with our with our prospects and clients and be able to relate to them, answer their questions and and continue, obviously, uh, promote
1: our business. Ferris, thank you very, very much for speaking with me today. I know that um, I certainly are going to avail myself of, of your services for my clients. Um, it's a critical area in, in marketing and being successful today. And you can reach Ferris if you would like to talk to him or reach him. You can reach him on e nor com. That's e com. Ferris, thanks very much. That was really interesting. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate it as well. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.
0: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? the bottom line in business. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, No Bullshit Business Radio Show. I'm coming to you tonight from Hong Kong. As you know, I've made over 1,500 speeches to companies in 53 countries, and it's a fantastic business to be in. You get to educate people, you share the stage with the world's thought leaders, you learn a lot, and you have a lot of fun. People often talk to me about, you know, what does it take to be a speaker? And other people ask me how they go about hiring a speaker. So I thought I'd go straight to the expert. Big Speak in Santa Barbara, California, is one of the world's leading full-spectrum bureaus. They represent every major business speaker, thought leader, athlete and author on the planet. The president and founder of Big Speak, Jonathan Wygant, himself a member of the world president's organization, he's with me now. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure, Bob. Thank you so much for the invitation. I guess the first question is, do you have to do something extraordinary like walk on the moon to become a speaker?
3: Well, you know, there are a lot of folks who've had very interesting lives, and some of them are kind of those adventure-type folks, and their stories are very interesting. But no, you don't need to have uh, walked on the moon or climbed Everest, though there are folks who uh, have, have done that. Um, you basically just need to have lived an interesting life, delved into some subject, uh, experience something that other people haven't, and that where you've gotten some sort of a, a great learning that other people could benefit from, and then obviously you want to uh, be able to articulate that story in a way that other people can learn and grow and be inspired.
1: Okay, so and be interesting, I guess. So, what specific attributes does a, a speaker need?
3: Well, um, I'd say first of all, they they need to be able to be calm on a stage, um, to be able to address um, and have an interesting story that keeps people obviously awake and interested. Um, have some some charisma, some some good energy from the stage. It's 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 different when you're on a stage. You need good sparkly energy to keep people interested motivated hopefully you've got some humor uh mixed in as well with with the interesting story or the the, the knowledge that you want to share
1: yeah you need that sort of on off switch i know that i'm a totally different person on stage than i am off stage that sort of entertainer in me comes mm-hmm. out so um and, and and i still get very nervous i must admit i've, I've done so many speeches, but I still get nervous. Um, so where would you recommend that a potential speaker begin? How do I? F- how would somebody find out whether they have the skills to be a speaker? Does it start with something like Toastmasters or something like that?
3: Well, you know, it very well could. I know earlier in, in my career, uh, I was in Toastmasters, and that got me some of the the real basics of being able to speak to not. Be using the ahs and the ums and (laughs) to, to actually be able to think on your feet. Um, and so I would just say that, that, uh, speaking to a rotary clubs, uh, at least in North America, um, that would be one way to do it. Local business networking groups, there are always those going on where folks who are interested in, you know, real estate folks or insurance folks or, Architects, everybody kind of goes to kind of put their business card out. And all the, those groups are always looking for somebody to come and, and give a half-hour, 45-minute talk. And it's a good way to get your message out there and uh, get your chops uh, sharpened up.
1: Yeah, it's a good way to, to learn one of the most important things, I think, is to be able to read the audience and to be able to think on your feet quickly. And that would be a good way to start in a friendly audience, um, people that you Indeed. know. Okay, so let's look at the other side of the coin um the organization that's looking to hire a speaker for a conference um you know apart from phoning big speak and asking to book me <laughs> what are the major considerations that a company should make when they're choosing a speaker well first and foremost does
3: the speaker know what they're talking about um, have they written a book um Have they spoken many times? I mean, certainly one of the things that we do here at BigSpeak is nobody comes on our team without being heavily vetted. Uh, And by that, that means either one of us have actually heard that speaker or we've heard from at least three meeting planners at legitimate organizations, corporations, who've hired a speaker and saying, hey, this guy or gal, did a fabulous job. Delivered a great message. We love him. We're going to rebook him. If we hear that from two or three people who are working for a Ford or an Amgen or a Xerox, you know, we know that that person's legitimate. Yeah. So that would be one of the ways that we vet people um, to to bring them onto our team.
1: So how do how do um, speaking experts help to improve the performance of employees? How does what do they get out of it?
3: Well, obviously, you know, a, a, a great speech to a group of people can be very motivating. Uh, great knowledge can be trans, you know, transmitted to these folks. There can, there can be some sparks that, that, that get ignited um, there where people go, well gee, I had I never looked at something like that, or hey, I ought to start doing this. Um, it's, it's, it's those kinds of moments that that ignite um change within people. Um, when you couple that with some ongoing uh follow up work, much what like what you may have done, Bob, is you come in and give a talk and then they'll say, hey she loved your talk. Um we know a a sixty minute or seventy five minute talk isn't gonna, you know, change a lot, but we want you to do more. We love what we heard, want you to come in, you know, roll up your sleeves, work with our team. Uh, put on some workshops and let's really find out about how to market um, our products better and how to serve our customers uh, with excellence and that would be something that you would do and and we you know obviously bring you into our clients to accomplish that objective
1: yeah one of the things that uh, really works for me is our uh, stories I have people that um, I run into that I spoke to their company, five years ago or something and they say I'm still telling our sales guys that story um, that you told us about whatever and uh, so they 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 do take it in and they do remember and it it does make a big difference
3: yeah Bob I would just say stories that um, are are really important parables uh, homilies you know all those types of things are much better than just you know straight information because people remember the stories it locks in the the learning, and I would say one other thing: it's important to really know your audience. Are you working with the, you know way up the food chain? Is it the, you know is it CEO and, and senior team uh, that's being addressed? There you might want to have a you know a great deal of very relevant content. Is it a sales group um, that uh, you know they've been droned at by by company uh, folks for two days and they they need to be pepped up? Well, then you might want to have the talk be much more on the motivational side. So that's one of the things we always ask um, clients who, who call us for a speaker. Well, how much facts, how much real material and, and relevant um, learning do you want versus the side of, hey, wanting to really pump these people up? And most people, you know, it'll, it'll be somewhere in the middle or toward one, one, one of those edges, depending on where during the day obviously you, anytime you do anything in the evening you want it to be very high on the fun you know laughter humorous side you don't want to be doing a bunch of you know heavy learning you know after people have had cocktails or dinner
1: yeah that's true it's, it's critical to I've got a detailed briefing sheet, as you know, that um, I find out the the educational level of the people and all of that sort of stuff because you could give a, a presentation four times to the same company and speak to four totally different groups of people who have totally different roles and you need a different presentation. Um, exactly. So, how can an organization capitalize on the money that it spends on a speaker at a conference?
3: Well, um, I would say the way that it can capitalize on it is first and foremost do a little poll of the people who are going to be in the audience a lot of times senior leaders they'll have a definite agenda that agenda that they have in terms of of what they want for their group may or may not have a high correlation with the actual challenges of that group so that's true. one of the things one of the things i think really important is to do a survey it doesn't have to be of everybody but You know, do a survey of five or ten percent of the folks who are attending, and saying, "Hey, you know, what are your challenges? What keeps you up in the middle of the night? What are are you? What is your group griping about around the water cooler?" And just make sure that those answers get woven into the the topic, the theme, and um, and answered over the course of a keynote speech or over the course of a conference.
1: I think that's really critical because you often find out, you know, I always make sure that I go to the event. There's usually an event the night before. I always make sure that I go to the event, and uh, I usually find myself getting back to my room and, and rapidly scribbling notes to change my presentation because you do get a different slant uh, when, you, when you're when speaking to the people at the coalface. So and, and that's you know, one other thing. We
3: encourage our speakers to get there a little early, hopefully even meet with the uh the CEO or the senior executive who's involved in the event, so yep, that, uh, that per- there's a real tie-in to the exact needs of that senior executive, but it's also balanced with, you know, the survey or some information from the folks who are going to be addressed.
1: Absolutely. So how much information do employees actually retain from a good speaker?
3: Well, there's actually a fair amount of, of evidence on this. Um, I think... That the uh, a keynote speech is is one of the most important things that an organization can do, and that's not just because we're a speakers bureau. Sure. But the fact is, people need to get pumped up. People, you know, this the world is challenging out there. Things are moving faster and faster. More and more demands are being placed uh, on employees. Most companies went through the 0809 time period and had to lay off people or downsize. So there's more work being demanded of folks. So having a speaker come in and deliver some important information about how you can do your job better etc cetera, etc cetera, is important but the, the statistics show that over time um, a keynote speech will probably result in a, something around a five percent improvement in behavior people will retain around five percent um, of what they heard as time moves on in order to make that a higher number if a company has a great speaker come in and follows it up with um, a workshop or a training where folks actually can roll up their sleeves, begin to actually apply those principles yeah. to meaningful challenges that they have in the workplace, that number uh, quadruples to around 22%. The and you multiply. Piece, yeah, it's a, it's a great multiplier.
1: That's right. That's right. So, okay, we're,
3: then, we're running. So I'm just gonna say, okay. Go, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that if you could then couple the, a workshop with then some executive coaching where um, there's actually um, some objectives that individuals have around feedback from their cohorts, if you will, about how they could do their job better, what their objectives are, um, that number goes from 5% to 20%. All, all the way up to 88%. An 88% improvement in behavior and retention of information if you,
1: if a company links speaking, a training, and some coaching. That's fantastic. Okay, we're at the end of our time, but what topics are hot in the speaking world right now?
3: Well, lots of topics are, are hot, but the ones that I think are top of the heap would be innovation. A lot of companies really looking to see how they can innovate and come out of this... Uh, this recession in a powerful way, um, marketing, you know, how to market better, how to reach people, and there's just this overload of information which kind of goes into your area, how to deal with change, especially disruptive change, because yep. there's a lot of disruption going sure. on. And lastly, I'd say strategy and teams. How do teams work better? How do we break down silos, and how do we get uh, teams to really work in a very functional, positive way?
1: thanks Jonathan it's great to speak to you again it's been a while so if you're out there and you're looking to really educate and motivate your team speak to Jonathan and the fabulous team at BigSpeak to find the speaker that's just right for you look them up on the web at BigSpeak.com
0: The business community's first choice in internet talk radio Voice America Business Network When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, No Bullshit Radio Show, coming to you today from Hong Kong. In this segment of the show, I talk about some business screw-ups, why and how they happened, and I also answer some of your emails. Now, good entrepreneurs like to push the envelope, so trying to come up with great ideas all the time isn't easy, and it sets the scene for some major screw-ups. Last week, I gave you some information, Examples of strap lines that just didn't work when they were translated from their language of origin. Some major embarrassments can occur if you don't do thorough research, and we had fun with some of those last week. But here's a couple that didn't translate too well, but they got away with it because it tickled people's sense of humour. But of course, that, that won't always be the case. Hunt Wesson introduced its Big John TV dinners in French Canada as gross jokes before finding out that the phrase in slang means big breasts. In this case, however, the name problem did not have a noticeable negative effect, probably because TV dinners are mainly bought by single guys. And on the same vein, in an effort to boost orange juice sales in predominantly continental breakfast-eating England, A campaign was devised to extol the drink's eye opening, pick me up qualities. Hence the slogan, orange juice, it gets your pecker up. Of course, pecker is slang for that part of the male anatomy that frequently requires Viagra. She said, I might try some of that myself. Now, there's a question that's being banded around by a lot of people at the moment, and that is, will Microsoft screw up Skype. So let's pose a question, should technology power be concentrated in the hands of just a few big guys? So now that Microsoft has snapped up the wonderful internet phone company Skype, is the software giant bureaucratic structure going to screw it up? By nature, technology companies need to be nimble and innovative and be able to adjust very quickly to the market changes. For the big bloated giants, this is impossible. And Skype must just be about the most wonderful application on the internet. Now it'll be owned by Microsoft, which purchased them from a set of private investors for $8.5 billion. It's a stunning price, particularly since those social investors bought the company only 18 months ago for $2.75 But for me and 170 million other people who love Skype, the scary aspect is will Microsoft screw it up? Will they do the same as they did with Danger Inc., which was an early mobile device maker that created the Sidekick line, which was a really cool early smartphone? Microsoft bought it, smothered it, drove away the talent, and basically killed Danger in its infancy. Now, the key to Skype's success has been its tremendous core team of engineers. The company was founded with the basic idea to let people make free voice and video calls over the Internet. And if you've ever used Skype, you know how good it is. I couldn't exist without it. In fact, I'm broadcasting you tonight from Hong Kong, courtesy of Skype. It also generates about $1 billion in annual revenue by charging users for services like making calls from Skype to landline phones. Now, Microsoft says that it intends to keep Skype operating at arm's length as an independent division. Supposedly, that will keep those brilliant Skype engineers from bailing out. The problem is that even if they're left alone, the Skype engineers will now have to engage with lots of different teams at Microsoft because the software joint wants to integrate Skype across many of its products both in the enterprise and the consumer space. And the goal is to also give Microsoft a chance to compete against Google and Apple, both of which have Skype-like products. But neither of these products has put a dent in Skype. The company is still adding 500,000 registered users every day. Users have downloaded 50 million copies of Skype for the iPhone, even after Apple's own FaceTime became available. So Microsoft will have a very powerful weapon. That all sounds great, but that integration is where the problems are going to kick in. When I think of those brilliant engineers at Skype trying to deal with their counterparts at Microsoft, well, Microsoft was described by Dan Lyons, who's the technology editor of Newsweek, as drones who are consumed with internal rivalries slowed down by bickering and hierarchy, obsessed with trying to figure out whose butt you need to kiss to get a better performance review and a bigger bonus. Well, that doesn't exactly fill you with confidence, does it? Now, we've received a lot of emails this week, and unfortunately, I only have time to answer one. Now, this one came from Marcia Jenkins of Carlsbad in California, and Marcia writes, Thanks for the show. I love it. I also love your Aussie accent. It's great. Marcia, I've been living in Los Angeles now for 25 years, and I still sound like I just got off the plane yesterday. So I guess I'm stuck with that accent, and I guess you are too. Now to your question. Marcia says, I'm looking for an investor to back my business. Last week, you talked about creating an investor proposal instead of a business plan. What is the difference? That's a good question, Marcia. A business plan is the blueprint for your business and has a lot of detail about every aspect of the product and the detail in moving forward and taking the product to market. However, in the initial review, the investor's interested in the broad picture, what it is. Why is there a need for it? What's the potential? What business model are you going to follow? What are the skills of the management team? And what's the proposed exit strategy? Now, if the investor likes the broad picture, they will ask you for further details of the product and strategies, risk profiles, competitors, etc. cetera. Marcia, I hope that helps. And uh, there's a copy of my new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, How to Blitz Your Competition, on its way to you for your contribution. Now, beginning next week, I'm going to feature one company that's looking for investment. I will simply direct any inquiries Director of the company. So, if you'd like to be featured, drop me an email to bob at Now, don't forget, I want to hear from you. So, visit my website at bobpritchard.com, sign up for my newsletter, email me, tweet me, become my friend on LinkedIn and tell me what it is that you really want to talk about. And there is no topic that is taboo. I'll talk about anything that you want to talk about. So that's it from me, Bob Pritchard. I thank you for listening to my show from fantastic Hong Kong, and I hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back the same time next week, back in my hometown of Los Angeles. In the meanwhile, enjoy Thanksgiving, kick some butt, and have some fun. See you again next week.